Hello and welcome along to Wilson and Windsor's Libertadores podcast, a podcast in English exclusively dedicated to the greatest competition in South American club football, the Commonwealth Libertadores. And we're back, myself, David Windsor, and Mr. Oliver Wilson. We apologise, or I apologise, for the audio quality of last week's pod with my, uh, you know, the, the AirPod microphone, Ollie, he's kind of smirking away. And yeah, I mean, I couldn't listen to it. So well done if you guys got through it. That was, uh, that was impressive. This week, we talked about the first legs of the quarterfinals. Things are getting real now in the competition, Ollie. It's getting sharp. Flamengo look absolutely awesome. Gappy goal has morphed from being a goal-scoring machine into the complete striker that we knew he would become. Ollie's wavering on his Palmeiras pick and so much more. Ollie, that was, uh, that was a good little pod, mate. He has had an assist in his career before, Gabriel Barbosa. These aren't the only assists that he's ever had. That was the most unselfish assist he's ever had. Possibly, yeah. Maybe something happened in his personal life. Like, what turns a selfish striker into an unselfish striker? Is it always something that happens out on the pitch? Is it always something he's being coached? Or is it something in his, you know, something happened in his life where he's now this kind of, maybe he's volunteering at soup kitchens on a Thursday night. I don't know. Gabby Gull is a complex character. I love him. Uh, Ollie, mate, I mean, it's the quarterfinals. What can you say? It's, um, it's pretty Brazilian heavy, but we still got hope for River Plate who lost against Atletico Mineiro, but got a chance in the second leg. We've still got hope for Barcelona of Ecuador, a couple of away goals against Fluminense. The second legs are this week, and then the semi-final lineup will be uh, decided. Yeah, it's all about Barcelona at this point. We're, I think I can safely say for both of us, we're jumping on that bandwagon even heavier than we already were to guide us through mm. the remainder of this tournament and fly the flag for somebody that isn't Brazilian. And particularly, it's nice just to have a potentially non-Argentinian side doing that as well. And, and they had a great performance this week. I mean, you're speculating about Gabby, Gabby's Barbosa's personal life here. I'm saying, on reflection after our discussion, maybe it's a sign that he's losing his bottle. <laughs> maybe. He doesn't back himself like he used to because of something that's happened in his personal life. You know, Maybe he was at home and he, and he dropped a cup and he was like, oh, God, I can't even make a cup of tea correctly. <laughs> I can't even finish from eight yards. I better square it to Vitinho instead. Um, you know, we could see uh, a was, different Gabby. It's certainly an interesting take. I I personally think that that assist for Vitinho was the most unusual assist I've seen for a long time. Not because of its actual structure of the assist, but just the personnel involved. Because I told you, I think a few weeks ago, Gabby uh, Vitinho came off the bench uh, to score that brace, didn't he? And Gabby Gold looked a bit annoyed that Vitinho had scored a couple. So I don't know, maybe something's happened with them in their relationship. Anyway, we're going pretty uh, pretty micro there with, with analysis of Flamengo. Um, yeah, I bridges. enjoy this pod, Oli. He's building yeah, bridges. You trust Vitinho now. It's, yeah. uh, oh, you scored two. I wasn't too happy mm-hmm. about it, but I know you can do it now. I've shown you the path. You must mm. now walk it. And he feeds mm. him along the path of goal-scoring credibility nice. in the Libertadores. So it was a good pod as always, man. I mean, we're I know we're a little late with it, but it's... A, better late than never. And B, you can listen mm-hmm. to this before the quarterfinals uh, are finished in the second legs this week. So don't worry about that, people. We've still got your weekly dose before the games uh, kick off. And yeah, there's a whole lot of stuff to get into. Is indeed. Ladies and gentlemen, enjoy the pod. Putting it back to the edge of the box. Oh, that is an absolute scorcher. Matthias Enrique has never scored in continental competitions. He has now. Alanga pulls the trigger and delivers on Binacional's Libertadores debut. They lead against Sao Paulo. 
Racing Club look like they're going to be the only Argentinian side to win in week one of the Copa Libertadores group stage. Ollie, I want to start by talking about Gabby Goal, but not Gabby Goal, the goal-scoring machine, not the Gabby Goal that scored eight goals in the tournament so far, not the Gabby Goal that was top scorer in 2019. Ollie, I want to talk about Gabby Goal, the creator. Gabby Goal, the unselfish teammate. Gabby Goal, the complete centre forward. And Gabby Goal, the best player in South American club football by a distance. Oli, Olympia won, Flamengo four. Gabby Goal scored two. But it's his part in the other two goals that I think is just utterly awesome. His assist for Vitinho uh, to wrap things up in stoppage time was just so ridiculously unselfish. I, I was wondering what footballer I was watching, right? He's clean throwing goal, but he knows Vitinho's in a better position, so just plays it square to him to, to, to finish. And his kind of second assist part in, uh, in Flamengo's opening goal where he plays it to Bruno Enrique, and then Deiras Gaeta finishes was also awesome. Olympia won, Flamengo four. Uh, listen, Flamengo basically, well, they are in the semifinals of the competition this year. And how good are the Brazilians, mate? First time I've thought they're back. Genuinely, the way they shredded this Olympia side. First time I've thought, okay, now I'm buying into what Windsor was selling when it came to Flamengo being the best side in this tournament. Because I still think Palmeiras, I mean, firstly, the fickle nature of the football fan coming out in true style here from David Windsor as, Honey, Honey, why is he not even in the Brazil squad for the Copa America? Where has this guy been? Oh, he's the best player on the continent for the last 12 months. Oh, Gabriel Barbosa, though, is still actually the best. Oh, no, no, no. Let me retract all of that that I've been saying for the first half of this Libertadores and last year's Hot, Libertadores. Honey was, Honey was a brief flirtation, but Gabby Goal is like the consistent lover that's going to be with you for years and Honey years. was your football side piece. Gabby Goal is the wife that you keep just going back to because you do truly <laughs> love her. Exactly. <laughs> um, look, it's a great move for the first goal. It's a, it's a wonderful team move. And the fact that Gabby Goal is the linchpin of it and the, rather than the, the final piece of the puzzle which De Arascaeta ends up providing is a, is a wonderfully novel moment. Do you think if that game is a 1-0 or 2-1 or he squares that for the fourth? Do you think it's more of a ah, we're, we're, we're done already they, they could cruise past Olympia in general in the game I mean the scoreline reflects the uh, the momentum and, and the quality that Flamengo had over their opposition in Paraguay. Do you think, though, on another night, Gabigol isn't squaring that? And so we're not talking as much about Gabigol, the creator, the unselfish forward. We're talking about the man who scores the penalty, the man that creates one from a position where he couldn't really pull the trigger and it was far better to square it for the opener for De Arascaeta. And we're talking about him perhaps scoring another, the fourth late on, or perhaps you know, fluffing his lines and he should have passed to the waiting Vitinho. No. No? Because I think, no, because I think what Gabby Gold does in that instance is irrespective of the scoreline. He's done a calculated, um, you know, I don't think I'm giving him too much credit to say he's done a calculated risk assessment of his position and Vitinho's position. And whether the score's nil-nil or 3-1, he's made that call because Vitinho's in a better position than him to square it. Listen, Gabby Gold at that point, he's on a hat-trick. Right, like it's quite it's a quite an unusual thing for a number nine to do. I think at three one up uh, to play that square, and I think all of his I think it's a really rational, really mature decision to uh, to lay a square to Vitinho for the fourth goal. So, so no, I, I just think we're seeing a different side of Gabi goal now. I think we we know the goals he can score, 
And what we're seeing now is just this, yeah, this maturity really. He's what, 24, nearly 25. So we're seeing just a completely, not different side to his game, but just a compliment and additional side to his game uh, that, that is just fantastic to watch and just adds even more weight to, to you know, to his perhaps ability to go back to Europe and, and do well or continue with Flamengo for the next 10 years and break all kinds of records. Let me just say one thing. Oh, yeah, you go for it, Well, I was going to say, you, you, you kind of touched on my next point, which was, do you look at this and think this is a player now that is looking more prepared to perhaps go and play in Europe? But would you take mm-hmm. Gabigol out of Brazilian football at the moment, South American football at the moment, where, as you say, and many other people do, he is the best player on the continent right now. He's still getting appearances and opportunities in the national team for Brazil, and that comes from consistently playing and playing at the highest level in South America and being arguably the highest performer in South American football. Whereas even if he took this maturity potentially to Europe, we might not see him getting the opportunities in a starting eleven for a, a really prominent side in European football somewhere. And that then may bring back the old frustrations and, and the old Gabby goal, you know? Yeah, of course. I mean, the easy thing to do would be from just there, Flamengo. But I just think the age he is at... I think now's the time, and if it doesn't work, as we've discussed before on, on the pod, you know, he can just go back to, to Brazil. I, I don't think it'd be too much trouble. But what we also offset with that with the fact that maybe he just absolutely loves life in Rio and he loves being the main man, he loves being adored, he loves being part of this machine that's Flamengo. And, and if and when they do win the Libertadores this year, uh, that's a question for Gabby Gol and the hierarchy at Brazil. I wanted to make one additional point, Oli. And yes, I did already give Flamengo the title in, in that little uh, monologue. <laughs> Seven... Seven of the 11 that started against River in the 2019 final started that first leg against Olympia. Seven of the 11. You know, you want to talk about the rarity of consistency in South American club football. And we could talk about this later with Palmeiras also being quite scatty, really, in their approach. They've got a a very deep squad and that's great. But the fact that Palmeiras' side does seem to constantly rotate, whereas there's no doubt that Flamengo know their best side. Um, do they miss Pablo Marie at the back? Yes, they do. Do they miss Gerson? Yes, they do. But do they have the players that can kind of fill those gaps and yet still retain, as I say, seven of the 11? Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and crucially, Oli, out of those seven of 11, uh, you know, Gabigol, Bruno Enrique, Deir Asqueta and Everton Hibero, the front four. But they've kept those four, Not uh, none of the four are too old necessarily. If anything, some of them are coming into the absolute prime. So, um, yeah, so so that, I think that's a really interesting element to the fact that, you know, two, what, two, two years later, uh, seven of the 11 that start against River. I mean, how many sides in the, in the continent can say something like that? And it's interesting as well how Flamengo have been through managers like nobody's business since Jorge Jesus and, and the changes that that brings in. But I imagine that core from the Libertadores victory two years ago does provide at least some stabilisation in the squad. And, and you know when Leicester City went on their incredible title run and there was the idea not long after that they lifted the Premier League trophy was Ranieri didn't really need to do much. Mm. They all knew how to play football that would be successful for them. And Ranieri was like a bit of a sit off and hands off kind of manager throughout that run and I wonder if this Flamengo side just needs that just needs somebody to orchestrate everything a bit sort out a bit in training but these players know how to play with each other and get the best out of each other so we have when perhaps when we have seen dips and I'm not going to pretend I'm a fly on the wall at Flamengo at all I don't know the inside information but maybe when we've seen dips when new managers have come in it's because they've tried to maybe change something or, or, or work it tactically different slightly in the, in the in the manner of play. They've, they're very much stuck 
mainly with this kind of 4-4-2 formation or the 4-2-3-1 as it can also be looked at. But actually, after a bit of time, the players just go like, look, we know how to do this. We've mm. done this before. We can do it again. And as you say, it, it, the lack of rotation and the knowledge of knowing roughly what that starting eleven is going to be. And, and, you know, you think Isla, for instance, coming in at right back, and I don't think he's played that well, but more and more consistent time in that squad and in that starting eleven, he's going to learn the job and get better and better and better. And it's just a case of letting those pieces of the puzzle, the last four pieces of the puzzle in that starting eleven, just catch up a little bit with everybody mm. else there. Yeah, and is he so much of a drop down from an ageing Rafinha? Do you know what I mean? Maybe slightly because you don't have that experience, but I don't think at right back it's it's something that can, as you say, I think those those kind of additional four, if you like, can can certainly fill the holes. And yeah, there's got to be a sense that they manage themselves slightly, right? Certainly the front four, as you say. I mean, what what do you think Renato Gaucho is saying in training that's so much different to the last two years? Probably not much, right? We, mm. we, all he's he's just probably you know it's the arm around the shoulder of Bruno Enrique, who we know is a you know a little bit of a sensitive soul, and then Everton Hibero, De Arascaeta doing what they do, and you know Gappy goal. I mean, you, you can't coach more than that. I, I'm not going to give Renato Gaucho, who's been there for two seconds, credit for this maybe other side of Gabby Goal's game that we're seeing now. Then you've got the experience of Felipe Luis at left back, Diego Alves, the goalkeeper. So yeah, uh, a point on Renato Gaucho, the, the Flamengo boss, now has 47 wins as a coach in the Libertadores. The second most successful coach in the history of the competition. How about that? And you've got to believe with, uh, you know, the second leg of the quarterfinals, two legs of the semifinals, that's going to, and the final... Are we going to see him reach maybe 50 wins as a coach in the Libertadores and be be out there by himself? Because the the the, the coach with the most wins has got 49, I think. So, yeah, Renato Gaucho, I mean, we don't need to talk about how, how good he is in this competition. We know the consistency with Gremio, but he does look to be a bit of a finishing touch uh, for Flamengo to have him in charge, Oli. Well, that is, that's one worrying thing for every single team in South American football is if Renato Gaucho is given the same time and can achieve similar levels of success as he did at Gremio. Because I have no doubt that the, the reason why his tenure stayed for so long was because they're consistently finalists, semi-finalists around that minimum top eight in the Libertadores making the quarterfinals, which Flamengo are at at the moment. And I think the expectation levels are a little higher with Flamengo considering the financial uh, acumen that they're able to use when building their squads. And, you know, not many teams would be able to afford a Gabriel Barbosa. But if he... Is if his reputation of being a great long-term manager changes this roller coaster up and down of of switching managers that Flamengo have had just in the last eighteen months or so, then that's worrying for everybody else, because there's no reason for any of these front four in particular to really need to go anywhere else if they are consistently semi-finalists, potential finalists for a Copa Libertadores and Renato Gaucho can get that out of teams and he has arguably one of the best squads in South America in his lap to be able to do that 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 could be another I hate using the word dynasty but it could be another dynasty sure. for Renato Gaucho which is incredible um, really I know you've yeah. been given the keys to the kingdom with picking up this right. Flamengo side but to do it at one club and then immediately go to another club and do it again and to do it with Gremio as well he's kind of He's already proven, Ollie, what he can do with not a bad squad at all, but a, a slightly inferior squad to, till, to, you know, they won the title with them, reached that string of semi-finals. So he's proven it. It's not like someone can look at Renato Gaucho and be like, oh, well, the squad was already there. You've done nothing for mm. it. He can be like, well, look what I did at Gremio. And I'm just, it's just a continuation of that. And we've seen with River how devastating and how rare it could be to have a manager 
who's consistent along with a squad that's consistent. So yeah, I mean, if you're a Flamengo fan, I can only see really exciting things uh, ahead. Flamengo now 14 games unbeaten in the in the Commonwealth Libertadores. So, I mean, normally this is the point where I say, what do Olympia have to do in the second leg to get through, Ollie? But should we just move on to the next uh, game? Because poor Olympia, I mean, we barely mentioned them. What can you say? That, uh, you know, they a slither of the budget, a slither of the fan base, a slither of the... What, what can you say? I mean, that's just the, the, the gulf. Goodbye, Rocky Santa Cruz. You are departing <laughs> into football retirement in a yeah. very sad manner, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Yeah. River Plate nil, Atletico. And uh, let's talk about um, who Flamengo, assuming they get through that second leg, will face in the uh, in the semi-finals. Then, Oli, uh, Fluminense two, Barcelona two in the first leg uh, of their clash. Um, we should probably recap slightly and just say that Fluminense in the second leg of their last 16 match against Serra Porteño, which was delayed, won that second leg 1-0, 3-0 on aggregate. So Fluminense very, very comfortably through to take their place in the quarterfinals against Barcelona. This was, in many ways, the most entertaining of the of the quarterfinal matches in midweek, Oli, I think. Uh, finished 2-2. Uh, Gabriel Teixeira scored for Fluminense after Burai had kind of made a bit of a mess of the corner. Yeah, Oli's shaking his head. It wasn't clever from a goalkeeper we rate. So let's, um, you know, you don't like to be proved wrong too often. So let's just park that for the moment. And then Preciado scored with a header that he just wanted so much inside the penalty area to make it one apiece. Then two late penalties. First from uh, Cortez for uh, Barcelona. Uh, And then... From Fred, deep, 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 deep into stoppage time to make it to a piece on the night. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of takeaways from this, Oli. I think my main thought was always Barcelona are so good at home that any kind of draw is going to be okay for them to take back to their place. You know, four wins and four home games in the competition this year. So looking at the 2-2, before we get into kind of the, the nitty gritty of it, that it's, it's a great result for the Ecuadorians considering how good they've been at home this season. I mean, thank God for Ecuadorian football, keeping these competitions alive in terms of there are, there's something to hold on to about the dominance of the Brazilian sides in this competition because, yeah, Barcelona were really good at, at taking the game to them. But they fell behind, as you mentioned, through Javier Barai's just cataclysmic error as a mm. goalkeeper at that level. You know, I know it's a crowded box that he tries to cut, but he comes and gets it all wrong. It's probably going over his head anyway, flaps at it. And uh, yeah, it's easily put home by Gabriel Tejera. But the ability to regroup and regather yourself in an intimidating venue like the Maracanã. Look, I know there's no fans there and everything like that, but it's, Brazil is a tough place to go. I will say Fluminense, probably the weakest side out of all of the Brazilian sides left in the competition. Um, I yeah. think they've been fairly consistent. But you look at the development of Atletico Mineiro, you look at the heights that sometimes Sao Paulo have reached uh, and Palmeiras and Flamengo. Um, they have been, I think, just that little bit better and have a little more quality in their squads as well than this Fluminense side. But, yeah, as you mentioned, the the, the goal, the equaliser from Preciado, it is just a wants it so much more. It's one of those ones where the ball is hanging for so long in the air and you see Preciado's run and he just comes over the back of one of the defenders. He's kind of sandwiched between two centre-backs. But the way he jumps with with real aggression, but like fair aggression, in the aerial challenge, you know that he's going to be the one who gets his head onto it and just wants it more. Keeper gets his hands to it and can't keep it out. And then it's just a bit clumsy, the last two goals, the two penalties. 
I think 1-1 would have been a really nice clean finish to this game and you credit Barcelona for, for battling back, particularly down to 10 men when Leandro Martinez gets himself sent off for two bookings, which away from home in the Libertadores is a very clumsy thing to do, particularly as the second booking. Second one's silly, a, isn't it? It's very late. Nibbly little challenge. Yeah, it's just it's just not needed. It's, yeah. it's, it's really stupid. Um, and then... It's a poor penalty to give away for Fluminense, for the Cortes penalty, and it's even worse from uh, from Brian Castillo in his clearing the ball away and just hoofing the attacker. I mean, it's just not... It's so clumsy, it's erratic defending, and it's composure in the 95th minute that you really need to have, and he quite clearly doesn't in that moment, and allows Fred to score. It's a great result for Barcelona. Two away goals, you can't have wanted much more than that. And to then have a draw as well and be level pegging going away from home. And what's exciting for me going into the second leg is that we will get to avoid the Brazilian side sitting within themselves away from home. They have to go now to Ecuador and play well and do something against a side that have played so freely on home soil in this competition, this Barcelona side. So Fluminense will have to come out and be aggressive. And it'd be interesting to see if they have that on the road in them compared to you know, perhaps what other Brazilian sides we've seen in the past do when they uh, go away from home in the Libertadores. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's, it's going to be a really good second leg, I think. Um, Fred scoring his sixth goal in the competition this year, Ollie, not bad for 37-year-old, his 24th Libertadores goal. Uh, what can you say? I mean, he's well, we can talk about hulking a little bit as well. But uh, yeah, Fred's still looking very composed from, uh, from 12 yards out from the spot. I mean using all the experience of a 37-year-old footballer mm. to be cool and calm in the biggest moment. I just don't think necessarily that Fred is going to be the one that can carry Fluminense through. It's a lot to ask of a 37-year-old who has been really good in creating as well as scoring in this competition. But I just think when you're at this level... And look, Damian Diaz, for instance, in that kind of similar old man role who's controlling a lot of the play, he knows how to play that role of I don't need to do lots. I just need to make sure what I do is that little bit extra from my standing position or my walking pace of football. And I think Damian Diaz had that perfectly, the way he was pulling the strings at times in the middle of the park in this game. I thought it was just a the perfect feeder player that you want maybe from a number 10 for then the supporting uh, characters that they have on the flanks and obviously down the middle as well with the uh, with the strike force. So, yeah, it's... um. I think it might just be a little bit too much for Fluminense. I'm going out on a bit of a, a limb here and saying that the Brazilian side might actually get knocked out, which I have no bias against Brazilian sides, but it does fill me with great joy. <laughs> it just uh, does. No, the, the same. I mean, I, I think and I hope that Barcelona go through. As you say, look, there needs to be representation from, from other countries. Uh, uh, on we need the more diversity, Windsor. We need, to, yeah. we need people to really think about inclusiveness and diversity of other nations exactly. in the Copa Libertadores. Something I can get behind, yeah. So, uh, yeah, and Barcelona at home, like, you've got to back them. So, yeah, that's going to be a great second leg. River Plate, nil. Atletico Minero, one. Um, this was an interesting one, Oli, because River had chance. I mean, Atletico Minero had chances, but River certainly had chances as well. Uh, you know, um, Alvarez had a wonderful chance. Uh, Brian Romero had an opportunity. I know Vargas had a chance for Atletico Minero as well before, before Nacho Fernandez scored against his... His former club, the only goal of the game. It's a beautiful little nod down from Hulk after I think it's Aracho who clips the ball into the penalty area. And Hulk's just got that real 
maturity and awareness, I think, to with the, you know, he doesn't try and take it down his chest and take it on himself. He almost instinctively knows where Nacho Fernandez is coming in, and Rivers should be so aware that this is what Nacho Fernandez does as that kind of third man running into the box. Hulk's little header back. Nacho Fernandez puts it in, later gets sent off, which we can talk about in a moment. Um, but, you know, River... There, we we haven't spoken yet about Montiel. We haven't done a podcast since Montiel left, uh, but he's gone. So Gashada had to move things around again and put like Casca right back and Hilary at left back. Uh, Matias Suarez still had a knock, so he started on the bench. I don't think that helped, especially after we eulogised about how good they were as a strike partnership, Brian Herrera and Matias Suarez. So hopefully we'll see that in the second leg in Brazil. Um, what can you say? I mean, Atletico Mineiro they'll feel a lot on chances. Maybe they just about edged it. River will feel as though they should have come away with something. I know you WhatsApp me and said River are out, Ollie, but I don't know whether you were just baiting me or do you really believe that? I think it's a really tough position. I do think it's a, I think it's one of the toughest positions we've perhaps seen aside from last year, obviously Palmeiras thumping them in the first leg of the semi-final on a home soil. But this is to me as tough because Atletico Mineiro is a we've we've used this adjective all competition it's just a really solid squad and i think for them to go and get a 1-0 lead away from home in the monumental is something that shouldn't be looked at they they really grew into this game and i thought controlled large parts of it river started really brightly and they weren't able to capitalize on the early opportunities they had i mean there's an incredible save from everson uh, between yeah. the posts, he gets a, a, a hand on. Oh, two. and Hilary's strike, yeah, from the left hand side, and he gets the faintest fingertips on it. I completely forgot about that. It's a cracking save. Yeah, and really is like, look, it's early on in the game, so it's not like a oh, game changing moment, but it was just one that you could look at in retrospect and be like, well, the signs were there that perhaps it just wasn't going to be the night if you really want to tell uh, tell too much of a, a narrative into it. But I do think that. Um, that Atletico Mineiro deserved their victory in the end. And it was always going to be Nacho, wasn't it? It was always going to be Nacho. You know, River didn't take the opportunities that they carved out. They began to slow down in what they were able to create. I certainly think that, you know, Matias Suarez being on the bench and, and, and not... Obviously, Alvarez and huge, Romero don't huge. have that same telepathic chemistry like we've seen. And, and it, we said it, it's incredible to see Suarez and Romero being interlinking so well straight from the get-go and River did miss that in the in the front line until he until he came on and by then it was kind of too late the Brazilians were in the ascendancy at that point and uh yeah it's, it was always going to be Nacho and I there aren't many times I think yeah don't celebrate and I was quite pleased he didn't really celebrate on that one because uh, that that's really interesting Ollie yeah I, I'm, I'm the same as you I generally I think it's just a bit naff right it's a bit ridiculous like you didn't okay if you went through the youth system at the club and you've been with them since you you know if, if Messi scores against Barcelona then that's fair enough if he doesn't celebrate but generally you know you get players that have been there four years and don't celebrate it's like you don't care about that club come on guys mm. you're employed by the new club but with Nacho Fernandez even though he hadn't been there that long yeah I kind of I felt that as well I thought and it wasn't like an arms up look at me I'm not celebrating was it no it, it was, was just... kind of just it was just a humble I'm not going to celebrate um which I re- which I, I really respected. What do you think the fan reaction would have been if there had been, you know, a, a full monumental? Would it have been a, you know, it goes one way or the other. It's a torrent of abuse that comes your way as a former player, even though you don't celebrate potentially. Or do they look and go, ah, you know what, you were pretty important in some of the success we've had in the last few years. 
I think just the fact he was part of that 2018 squad that beat Boca in the final. I think anyone who's part of that, like, I don't know, you know, they can walk on water in that part of the city, I would have thought. So, well, they kind yeah, of had I to almost for the first leg, didn't they? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think very good. I don't think he would have um, got booed, but I do think when he raises his studs like that on Ang- Angulari, I think it's, uh, it's a bad, bad tackle. He's rightly sent off, and I think he would have got a lot of abuse um, mm. in that moment just because it's like it, it's a really bad challenge I mean yeah but what I also like all is you know, we talked about Hulk and Nacho Fernandez in the group stage just not quite maybe clicking but we've seen it really more uh, in the last two or three months I think in the league and then in the Libertadores as well so it's nice to see that combination uh, but I, I still I still think despite Atletico Monero having the leads despite Atletico Monero being now unbeaten in 10 Libertadores games Kuka leading the charge, I, I still think... I think as long as Matias Suarez is fit and those two are up front, I think River go through. Gachado's got a great record of going to Brazil in really, mm. really big games, backs against the wall and doing something special. So I, th- I think certainly River go there and score. Again, I'm going to caveat this with as long as Suarez is fit. And I think, I assume he will be seeing as he, you know, he came off the bench in that, in that leg. So uh, I think he played at the weekend too in the league. So yeah. Uh, I think Rivers can still go through. What about and River with uh, obviously losing Montiel? Just we we should touch on that because he's been one of the players that we've absolutely Subject. loved watching in this Riverside. Yeah, we have, and um, you know, I guess it's just a, a miracle that he stayed so long. Really, in many in many ways, he's he's got that kind of quality. Does Montiel? I think Gashada. We've you know, I think we've passed the point now of listing the players that Gashada's lost because it's just so many at this point. But what is that? Six or seven top, top quality footballers. Uh, you know, he's lost off the top of my head. Uh, you know, um, Quintero, Borre, Palacios, Montiel, Nacho Fernandez. You know, there's four or five that I can't even remember now. But yeah, I mean, he, he's had it. He's had it ripped out of him. And I think Gashado just, he knows he's in his last few months at River now. So good enough. Um, what? Montiel, good enough to make an impact. I mean, the severe right back position is one that. It's had quite a few decent yeah. players come through that, particularly one it from has. South America hey, stands I mean, he's out. Not, I mean, he, he, sure. He's not Danny Alves, but he's a very solid right back who's an exceptional right back at this level in South America. What he's like in La Liga, I think he, he's a solid right back. Yeah, I think he's... And I think he'll surprise a few maybe with, uh, you know, his ability to cross the ball, Ollie, isn't that something that won't, yeah, he might not have as much time to pick the crosses out and stuff, but that shouldn't be impacted too much by the quality of of the opposition if you if you sort of catch my drift. Mm. So I think he might surprise a few people with how many assists he racks up. He might rack up as many assists in Europe as he, as he did in South America, which is a big big plus for a fullback. So yeah, I'm excited for him. I think it's a, I think it's a good signing and a good move. Yeah, like a good right back is a good pass from a right back is a good pass from a right back wherever sure. he is. Like you can do it in South yeah. America, you can cross that same pass in European football. Unless- exactly. Unless you've got, it's the not nerve. like he's dribbling around seven players, and then you think, "Oh, I don't know if we'll get away with that." In, yeah, in yeah. Europe. But uh, do you think Atletico Monero go through? I, I, I think I do. Yeah, I think, um, mm. I think they can. They can just be quite a stubborn side, and I think stubborn is more frustrating for a Gachado team than a flamboyant attacking side. I mean, against Flamengo, obviously this is now two years ago in the final, but it wasn't Flamengo's incredible attacking prowess that won it. It was their stubbornness to, they only conceded one fairly early on and then River found it tough to 
well, both sides found it tough to win that battle in the middle of the park. And eventually, a couple of breaks go your way late on, and Flamengo are Libertadores champions. Whereas they almost pulled off the incredible comeback against a Palmeiras side that perhaps leave themselves a little more exposed in the midfield and a little more exposed defensively because of the way that they come forward at times. And so, yeah, I think I think the the bullish, stubborn nature, perhaps, of the core of this Atletico Mineiro side makes it a little more difficult to overturn. But as you say, Suarez and Romero together, we haven't seen much of it, but what we've seen has been amazing. So you don't know on a big stage. Yeah. And I just, I just wonder whether, I mean... Kuka knows how to to play in any situation, but it's you know it's an interesting one for Atletico Mineiro. Do they do they sit back? Do they what we have we hold, or do they push on and try and find that goal? Puts them in also you don't sticky situation. You don't have Nacho Fernandez. That lead. Yeah, you don't have Nacho Fernandez. So they signed Diego Costa two days ago. He's not or yesterday was it? He's not going to be eligible uh, for the for the game, obviously. But um, yeah, I mean, I quite well fits in there. I'm not sure, but. Because they've got quite a sweet thing going on at the moment, but uh, I'm sure there'll, there'll be a space for him. And you can't expect Hulk and the amount of games they play in Brazil. I'm sure Diego Costa and Hulk. I mean, they're not exactly the same players. Diego Costa can kind of sit off a little bit more, maybe. But it's an odd one. Two yeah. pretty fairly similar, if we're being lazy in terms of profile players. Oh, let's be lazy. It's two. Yeah, sees me, sees me, mate. <laughs> okay. Um, Sao Paulo one, Palmeiras one. This was kind of the the, the match that. You know, the, the, it's, it's the big derby, local rivals on the continental stage, the defending champions. Uh, what could you say? I mean, Honey started, so he's finally back for Palmeiras and in Libertadores action. Uh, and yeah, I mean, they were quite, it was quite open from what I saw. There were there were plenty of chances. Juan Santos scores for Sao Paulo after 54 minutes and then Patrick de Paolo with what I'm going to call a very, very clever free kick to equalise after 74. It kind of leaves the tie on a bit of a knife edge. Um, I was just going to say that a couple of points about the game and sort of wider points. The Palmeiras now haven't won in four games across the Libertadores and League. They've started in the league, haven't won now in, in four across those two competitions. And just the starting lineup for Palmeiras, it, it's every time you look at it, Oli, you, you have to, it takes a few minutes to get your head around it, right? It's not like with a, a Flamengo or a River in the past where there was that consistency where it's maybe one in, one out or tweaked or you know, the alteration is minor for a specific tactical need. This is always, you look at that Palmeiras side and you'd be like, right, okay, wow. Like uh, he hasn't played for a while. Where's he? That kind of thing, which I don't, I'm not sure at this stage in the competition is going to do them many favours. Yeah. I mean, you touched on it earlier, the the rotation that Palmeiras have, have adopted in this competition, particularly going into the knockout stage as well, has surprised me how, you know, the the group stage, I think we had a bit more of a grip on what the regular starting lineup was for Palmeiras, you know, and then and then the changes have, have been thick and fast in between the, the start of the knockout stage and the end of the group stage, the second leg and the first leg of the round of 16, and now again, a handful of changes. I mean, Honey playing like down the middle this week now, mm. which I, I don't necessarily think is his best position when you've got Luis Adriano on the bench waiting to come on it's a it's a change of formation with the three at the back four in midfield almost with the wing backs and Rafael Vega and Dudu coming in we haven't seen Dudu much this year as well after he was fairly prominent in the last 18 months in the um in the competition leading into this year's one so I don't know if it's trying to balance everything because that Brazilian schedule is brutal at the moment and maybe it does give Palmeiras a bit more of uh, opportunity to keep players fresh for further down the line in, in every competition but you are at the quarterfinal stage now and you are taking on your local rivals 
like this isn't the time to be holding things back and, and again maybe you're on the road so that's come into it with uh, uh with uh, abel ferreira kind of thinking well as long as we can get a half decent result we can get something back at home which again we've seen palmeiras have that attitude in the past previously in this competition but it does yeah it just does surprise me and it's continued to surprise me as we've gone on through this tournament how much rotate it's got me worried about my pick of palmeiras or repeat and this week now with Flamengo coming to the forefront even more, it has had me like, was Abel Ferreira, is he now trying to do too much to change things around? Much like a Ranieri did when in the second year after winning the title, he got more involved, got more hands-on, felt they needed to freshen things up. And sometimes if it ain't broke, there's no need to fix it, you know? Sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I think... I think Flamengo do look the stronger of the two sides. You could also just point towards the opposition. If Palmeiras are away at Olympia, Oli, you know, how do they get on there? Mm. You'd, imagine, you'd imagine they go to Paraguay and win, right? So so there's that element to it as well. I mean, yeah, I don't know. I, I still think Palmeiras go through in this tie, but certainly Hernan Crespo and Sao Paulo will, 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 fa- will fancy that 90 minutes, I think. Uh, it's, it's hard to say. I mean, who's that a better result for? Because Palmeiras have got the away goal and they got home. But for, for Sao Paulo, it's like you've, you've definitely raised a question mark about the tie. You, you go into a 90-minute shootout where Palmeiras, are def, you know, the, the pressure's all on them. So so that's an interesting one as well. It's, it's, uh, I think um, yeah. I think when you look at it in that aspect, the, the scoreline and, and not looking at any of the actual game, I think you'd say, oh, that's actually not too bad for Sao Paulo because they're still in this when if you look back at what they had been doing in this competition, they've been a bit all over the place. You know, I was expecting them to be tested more against Racing, but then they were really good. So I guess coming into the quarterfinals off the back of their round of 16 victory over Racing Club, you think, oh, okay, they have got something. And then they've shown on home soil they can compete with their arguably more successful in the last few years, at least, local rivals. But Sao Paulo weren't great in creating clear-cut chances. There were a couple from close range that required... Uh, Weverton to be really adept and he made a fantastic double save before Sao Paulo took the lead yeah. and took the advantage but uh, Luan Santos if he, if he misses the third chance you know you've got no right to be in that game at that point but a lot of the efforts that Sao Paulo had were kind of from range Palmeiras did a good job to kind of smother in the middle of the park when they needed to so that's why I think Palmeiras went there looking for just okay we can take a draw if we get a goal if we can get something away and smother a bit more with the change in formation that they've done as well going into this game because it was almost more of a five at the back than a than a three and then the four in midfield like the wing backs sat quite deep for large parts of it and tried to hit on the counter attack so I think this is a better result for Palmeiras overall and I think we expect them to get back to what they would normally do on home soil which is Luis Adriano up front with Honey supporting and then pick your pick your other supporting character really alongside them doesn't matter who goes through. Ollie, you seem to have gone the entire podcast without saying, what was it, the Copa de Brazil International? I mean, that's, that's what you've rebranded. I was, the I was saving it for the end, to be honest. The, uh, <laughs> okay. Well, there you go. The only, good, you the only good thing about Sao Paulo and Palmeiras playing each other is that we are guaranteed to lose a Brazilian team. Mm. You know, uh, we, uh, we keep saying it. I, I, I keep harping on about it. I still think the Copa Sudamericana, particularly at this point in the competition, is probably a more interesting competition to look at because of the variety in the teams and because you see more of the the 
really young players, I think, in South America flourishing, albeit on a less grand stage, of course, but like Peñarol's Augustin Alvarez Martinez. I think we had the stat in the uh, in the highlight show. It was like 103 goals in 117 games for Peñarol's youth team. And then he's scored nine goals already in this competition. And everybody else on the top goal scorers list is out. Like, he's mm. 20 years old and he's the best yeah, striker great. in the uh, in the Common Ball Sudamericana and Peñarol have been a great side to watch and but they're still being tested by the likes of Sporting Cristal and others whereas I look I get to the Libertadores games in the week and I'm like oh yeah it's just another Brazilian team and the Brazilian sides they're all the favourites in these ties really maybe not River and Atletico Mineiro going into these these games in the quarterfinals this week I think in all of the other ties you'd look at it and be like yeah they're the Flamengo are the favourites obviously this last one, Sao Paulo against Palmeiras, doesn't matter. One of them's going to be Brazilian going through. And the and the Barcelona tie as well, you look at it and say, yeah, I think just on the balance of where Ecuadorian football is financially compared to Brazilian football, you'd probably say that Fluminense were edged favourites. You'd, you'd have more of a, a time backing them compared to Barcelona. And I think we're just very pleased that Barcelona are maintaining their form throughout this competition. So it, it does continue to feel more and more like a Copa do Brasil international and there's still a really strong chance all four all four semi-finalists are going to be Brazilian mm. and at that point I'll just put my hands up and be like well where's the where's the fun I mean I think what will probably happen right is two or three of these semi-finalists will be Brazilian and the conversation gets a little bit nudged to the side where it still should be had like the problem's still there which is that brazilian sides are set to absolutely dominate for the next decade but if all four sides are brazilian then it, then it's so the optics are so strong that you'd be like oh wow okay let's have that conversation but mm. if just palmeiras and flamengo go through it's still that we know that it's still the exact same situation it's just a, a goal here or a bit of luck there but the underlying problems are the same but it won't be talked about because it'll be like wow what are you talking about river there barcelona there like you know it's, it's only 50 percent of them are, are, um, are from from brazil i tried to look at the odds on it i actually couldn't find the odds um but i'm assuming it's all i've told everyone i know that if you back palmeiras and flamengo at three to one and whatever it was Seven to one or six to one, six whatever to one, five. yeah, yeah, like you're guaranteed to, to to make money. So I'm sure, I'm sure the odds haven't changed because I don't think English no. bookies are really looking no. at this. They won't change until the semi-finals, maybe, and then exactly. they might put River at longer odds because they'll be out. So <laughs> and they'll probably be like, oh, a Boca Juniors still in it. They must be. Let's put them at two yeah, to one. Yeah, very much so. The interesting thing, actually, just to kind of go on a bit of a, you know, sometimes we go big picture with football and stuff. It's talking about, obviously, the dominance of Brazilian football, the way their league and their systems are being set up to allow more money to come into these football clubs to be run more like businesses. And I do worry that it's almost like we're not learning in South American football from the mistakes that European football have made because the outcry and the actual outpouring, uh, how awful what's happened with Messi going to PSG, I don't necessarily think it's awful what's happened with Barcelona and Real Madrid. You should be held to financial fair play accountability. And if you can't be, you lose your Barcelona best. Barcelona are a billion in debt. One like, point the business side of football. The business side of football bores me to tears, right? So I rarely talk about it apart from, you know, but I looked at that and I thought, <laughs> like, I'm not an economist. But ha- sorry, ha- sorry, what? Like, how. Like how? Like they yeah. must, a club like Barcelona. How many people do you think are on their finances team, Ollie? I mean, fifty, a hundred in terms of like lawyers, economists, you know, social media, everyone that's like well, at least, yeah, like maybe maybe fifty people are across Barcelona's finances. So sorry, how? H- how? I mean, that's what happens when you try and redevelop a new camp while also trying to spend, you know, three hundred thousand 
after tax on individual player salaries and you keep just buying players that fail and you keep paying extortionate amounts of money for players that fail. I mean, they make... <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I mean, did no, is there no one sensible in the Barcelona hierarchy that says, whoa, 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 whoa. Hang on a second, folks. I've just looked at the numbers. Turns out we might be one billion in debt if we do that. Well, is there any chance we can just be five hundred million in debt instead? This is this is the the point that actually La Liga have made in that La Liga have their own financial fair play. It has to be sorted out before the season as opposed to after. Um, and La Liga have said because of the COVID nineteen situation and because of the lack of revenue coming into Barcelona and Real Madrid, you have to slash your wage bill by. 200 to 400 million, depending on which club you're and which figures you're, you're looking at. And that's why we're in the situation. So La Liga particularly are annoyed about the European Super League stuff. And so are holding these teams finally to account, which I think is great because you shouldn't mm-hmm. be allowed to be 1.3 billion. Countries <clears throat> no. shouldn't really be allowed to be 1.3 billion in debt, let alone... How, fine... many, in, how many in debt are, is our fine country, though? Oh, we're, I like, mean, I trillions, we're in the aren't we? Yeah, yeah. We're, we're, in the, we're in the trillion plus mark. So, you know, glass houses throwing stones. But we are a country, not just a football club, even though Barcelona say they're more than just a football club. But nice. the, the, the more kind of... Uh, distressing thing is how Messi's gone to PSG and the the money that PSG are throwing around in wages and how it can all be funded by just like a brand new sponsorship on the shirt sleeve of a random Qatari business as a way of feeding the oil money in to avoid financial fair play. Mm. Very brief rundown of what's just happened in European football there. But the more to the point is we're seeing the doors now opening up in Brazilian football for what we saw many years ago in European football. And we're already seeing because other South American countries either don't have the financial capability or they're not willing to change like Argentinian football at the moment is still memberships uh, rather than a business, so to speak. So we're seeing that change coming. We're seeing the immediate impact of it already with Brazilian football club dominance. And there's nobody yet saying like, oh, this is what happened in European football. And now we only have like an elite couple of clubs that can afford the biggest names on the planet and everybody else is even in Premier League terms they're fighting for scraps you know and the Premier League's the richest league in the world compared to PSG and Man City and we're losing the element of competition and that's what football is as we've said time and time again that's why the European Championships and the Copa America were so good this summer because international football is the great leveler of competition you have it's not about salaries you have to be part of your national team by being nationally accredited to that country either by a grandparent or whatever ben brereton diaz by the way we're not having that was forced to say it on the weekend and it just blew my mind that he's allowed that's like uh bruno bruno enrique smith you know what i mean he's just picked a latin name sure, and added it sure. onto the end but we, we need it's, to actually yeah. keep an eye out on what's happening with this mm. dominance of brazilian football because if lo- as soon as you lose a competitive nature of a competition it's worthless to a football fan financially it's great for a football team and for the teams that can afford it and bring in those players but for the fans of the game we are if we lose the idea that our team can win something what's the point in following it anymore sure and i just i hope south america learns from the mistakes of european football now how you do that is a bigger question that i'm not smart enough to answer (laughs) 